We're going to uh, do something a little bit different now as we uh, look at Psalm 11. We're going to read the psalm uh, together from the screen uh, as a responsive reading. So what this means is that sometimes you'll see on the screen uh, where it says leader, which today is me, Um, and uh, then there'll be times when it says all, which is the congregation. Okay, so we're going to read Psalm 11. Uh, And there'll be a slide that is where I will read, and then everybody will respond. When it says all, I'll be included in the all, so I can um, lead that bit of the reading. Uh, But why don't we stand together as we uh, read uh, Psalm 11 together. So let's stand. And Psalm 11 uh, is uh, a psalm of David, so it's worth knowing that uh, as we begin. So in the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Well, if you would have uh, your Bibles uh, and turn with me to Psalm 11. Uh, If you have uh, a church Bible, it's page 548. And if you have a large print Bible, it's uh, page 848. And we're going to just be in uh, this 11th Psalm this evening. And I've entitled this message, uh, Flight or Faith? Flight or Faith? So Walter Bradford Cannon, Walter Bradford Cannon, was an American physiologist, professor, and the chairman of the Department of Physiology at Harvard Medical School. And most of you probably um, have never heard of his name, but you will have heard of a term that he coined, the fight-or-flight response. The fight-or-flight response. This is where the body prepares itself either to flee or to fight in a situation of acute uh, distress or acute stress. And whilst Cannon's research explained the physiology, like what happens to the body in preparing to fight or flee, and all the adrenaline and all of that kind of thing, our actual response of whether to fight or to flee depends on all sorts of factors, doesn't it? So for example, as I'm out on a walk, uh, I'm quite happy uh, to fight any insects, at least insects in the UK, that come my way. If a spider is blocking my path, I will bat the spider away. If the midges are coming, I'll lose the fight, but I'm prepared to give it a go. 
But on my walks, I've also encountered cows. Cows. And if you're walking along the path, and it's a certain season of the year, and you see the cow, you can try and fight it if you like. But my response, of course, is to flee. Another uh, incident when we went on a walk one time was uh, we were chased by a whole load of horses. And we didn't stick around. We ran. So to fight or flight depends, doesn't it, on the circumstances. But in the 11th Psalm, we don't have fight or flight, but we have something very similar. We have, in this order in the Psalm, flight or faith. The context for King David is a society that is crumbling around him. Its foundations are being destroyed. And he is being advised to flee. He is being advised to withdraw from the struggle, but instead David responds in faith. And what we're going to see in this psalm is how we ought to live in a world and a society where the foundations of God's moral order are being attacked. But also we can answer the question of how to respond when the foundations of our lives seem to be under attack. When the rug is, is pulled out from under us, how do we respond when those times come? We're going to answer the question in these situations, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? Well, there is no historical note here, so we don't know the context exactly that David is in. But this psalm is linked to Psalms 9 and 10 with the continuing theme of how to respond to the wicked and to wickedness in our world and how God is always the king over the world. So in the Psalter so far, Psalms 3 to 7 were various struggles that David has as he rises and ascends the throne of Israel. Then we had a break in Psalm 8 where we praise the Lord. It's like an interlude. And then in Psalms 9 and the Psalms that we're still looking at now, we see that this world, which in Psalm 8 was that humanity was supposed to rule over well, is a world that is full of wickedness, where humanity is not ruling well as they were made to. And we're seeing how to, to live in a world that is, is full of wickedness. That's the theme of, of these Psalms, this group of Psalms that we're looking at. Last time we saw in Psalms 9 and 10 that wicked the wicked won't win. Today we see how the righteous must have faith in the God that makes that true, even when the temptation is to flee. Well, David's position, notice in verse 1, is made clear. Notice the first line. He says, In the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I take refuge. He begins the psalm with that note of what he is going to do or what he is doing. Uh, the Lord is the God of Israel, David's God, and in him he has taken refuge. And as we've been going through the Psalms, you may have noticed, and I hope you have, that that word refuge is a common word in the Psalms. We've seen it a number of times already. Psalm chapter 2 verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm chapter 5 verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Psalm 7 verse 1, Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Psalm 9 verse 9, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And there are plenty other Psalms where this word refuge is used to describe a place where we can go 
when the troubles come, and that refuge is the Lord himself. David has taken refuge from the wicked. David has taken refuge from God's judgment in the Lord. He's forgiven of his sins because he has taken refuge in the Lord. He has help in times of trouble because he has taken refuge in, in the Lord. Having a refuge means that the Lord is helping David to live for the Lord in the world. David knows the Lord. David trusts the Lord. The Lord is his refuge. That's the stand he takes. He's entered in to that, as I've said before, that cave of, of security when the avalanche is coming down. In New Testament language, this is speaking of a Christian on whom, in the words of the song we'll sing later, how firm a foundation for refuge to Jesus have fled. David is declaring his faith in the Lord. He's saying how the Lord is his refuge. And if that's true for us, if it is true that Jesus has died for our sins, is risen from the dead, has ascended to heaven, and is returning to reign, which is true, we might say with David to his friends, how can you say then to me, flee? So we see that in verse 1. I've taken refuge in the Lord. I have come to God. He is my refuge. He is my help. He is my, uh, my savior. He's forgiven me of my sins. He's given me all this. And as, as Christians, we've come to the Lord. We've been forgiven. We have that security. We have that hope of never, uh, that, that inheritance that never perishes, spoils, or fade. And if that's true for us, we can say to those who want us to flee, and when we're tempted to flee, we can say, if that's true, how can you say to me, flee? And what we see is David asked that question because, first of all, there is the temptation of flight. David was being advised to flee. But David is saying, how can I do that if I've taken refuge in the Lord? How can I run away if I'm a Christian? How can I go away from the Lord if the gospel is true? Or as the disciples asked Jesus, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. How can I flee? How can I run away from God if the gospel is true? Notice in your Bibles that there are speech marks at the beginning of the third line of verse 1 that close at the end of verse 3. That's because David is quoting a little speech that his advisors are giving him about what to do when his society is crumbling. So let's look in detail at the advice David is receiving. Notice at the end of verse 1, flee like a bird to your mountain. There was a place no doubt David could go to and retreat. David could flee to his mountain. He could be in isolation. He could exclude others. He could be all on his own and have a happy time with no troubles whatsoever. Now for some, this may sound like bliss. There is a time when isolation and silence and so on is a good thing. Sometimes we do need that. Sometimes that's appropriate. But this isn't talking about occasional times of going on a, a silent retreat. This is talking about checking out of the kingdom of God and going off on your own. The Christian life is not about retreating to a mountain monastery somewhere and being outside the world. Or even to Swanwick. It's okay for a short time, but we're sure glad you're back. <laughs> the Christian life is actually a life not of retreating away from the world on our own, but living in the world in a community. 
It's the life of participation in the world by participating together with God's people. But David is being advised to fly away like a bird, to fly out of reach quickly. Now, I don't know if any of you, you probably don't do this anymore, but maybe when you were children, um, you chase birds, don't you? You see the pigeons and you start running after them. Maybe it was just me, but I used to do that. And you saw the birds. No bird ever fought me back. They just flew away and went up in a tree so they could escape me, right? And David is being advised to do just that. The wicked are coming. They're attacking the foundations of society. And a bird can quickly fly away into isolation. And that's what David is being told to do. Why does he need to flee? Well, look at verse 2. Because the wicked are ready for him. There is a readiness to attack described here in a similar way, actually, to God being ready for judgment in the seventh psalm. So notice that the bow is bent, the arrow is set, and they are ready to shoot. And they are hiding. They are in the shadows, and they are waiting. Now, David, no doubt, is under threat himself. But this attack from the enemies isn't really against David's person. Verse 3 shows us the crux of the problem. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? These attacks are not necessarily at David, but they're at David's society, at David's kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah. The word foundations here is a word that means the moral basis of a society, the, the core values of what makes a society what it is. In the context of Israel, and even today for us, it's basically the Ten Commandments and the law of God. The wicked are attacking the foundations of society, attacking the moral order that God has set in place, and King David was, at that time, Israel's Messiah, and it is his kingdom that is being under attack, and therefore it is the kingdom of God that is being under attack. So this is not really talking of fleeing persecution. Uh, During the reign of Mary I in England, Protestant churches were under attack, and Christians were being rounded up and burnt at the stake. Some Christians fled to the continent. Many of them ended up in Geneva, Some stayed, proclaimed the gospel here, and were killed. But neither were right or wrong as a whole. People did what they felt God wanted them to do. Some of those that fled to Geneva were able to come back after Mary had died and be amazing ministers for the gospel in this country because they'd survived. There was no right or wrong in fleeing that persecution. It was down to those individual Christians. And we see this today. Christians are fleeing often regimes where lives are in danger. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. It depends on what God has for us. This is not talking about that kind of flight. What verse 3 is talking about is the attacks Uh, against the foundations of society and the temptations to retreat from the world and not participate in the work of the church because it feels like a hopeless task when the foundations of society are under attack. I hope you see the difference there. When the foundations of our world are under attack, 
What can the righteous do? And, and, and when the, 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 David's advisors are saying, what can the righteous do? They're basically saying, what's the point in carrying on? You might as well just flee, David. What's the point? There's nothing you can do. These foundations are going to be destroyed. The wicked are going to have their way. Just, just flee. Just go. Look after yourself. You'll still be the king. You're still, you know, God's Messiah. You're still, go. That's what's going on here. Well, let's think of some examples of foundations being destroyed in our culture today. Uh, The most obvious, I think, at the moment, the kind of, I guess, reigning idol of the day, is that the foundation of marriage is being destroyed, isn't it? Uh, Marriage is part of God's good created order, and it is under attack by a wicked society trying to redefine it, It's under attack by normalizing cohabitation and normalizing homosexuality. It's under attack by divorce becoming easy. And people lie in wait to attack Christians when they speak the truth. Many are literally ready with bows bent and arrows set to attack those that speak out. That's one example of the foundations being destroyed. Or there are church scandals where pastors fail spectacularly through spiritual abuse or sexual immorality, or churches begin to move away from biblical truth, the very foundations of what God calls a pastor or a church to be seem to be being destroyed. And one of the attacks of the wicked is so often, well, look at the church. Look at what they've done. And sadly, the wicked being in the church have made those accusations true so often. Or, I've mentioned recently uh, that the commandment, do not murder, is being violated today with abortion and with discussions on assisted suicide coming up. And again, people line up to attack Christians if they have another view. Last year, a Christian was arrested for silently praying outside an abortion clinic. And then overall church attendance is falling. Christians have less and less influence. Society is becoming more and more secular. Christians seem more and more marginalized. And when you speak to people about Jesus and live for him, we seem to be more and more like foreigners in our own land. What can the righteous do? We can feel like, what's the point? But then also in our own lives, foundations can seem to shake. Now, our true foundation as Christians is Christ, and when we're building, building it on something else, it's a good thing that they're being shaken. And sometimes important pillars of our lives can be shaken when we lose our health, our job, our family has problems, our loved ones pass on, and following Jesus is hard, and we say, what can the righteous do? The temptation can be to flee. Well, before looking at what the righteous should do, it's important that we look at this temptation of flying away like a bird. The temptation that came to David. When the foundations of our society are being destroyed and the work of the gospel seems hopeless and following Jesus is hard, when the foundations of our lives are rocked and we despair, there is a temptation, is there not, to flee. Now what might this fleeing look like? There are a number of ways in which a Christian might take flight or be tempted to. Number one, some Christians 
are tempted to compromise and conform to what the society around them want. This is running out of the refuge of the Lord and into sin. Or they, they try and make the Bible say what they want it to say rather than what it does say. It can seem an easy option to compromise on the truth. And many Christians are tempted to flee to compromise. Secondly, others retreat to Christian enclaves. Having no contact at all with the world outside, our only relationships with those at church or our immediate family, and we don't get involved in the world around us at all. Historically, many Christians have retreated to the monastery, withdrawing from society altogether. And whilst I doubt many of you here are tempted to go to a monastery, many here no doubt are tempted to never really have to see a non-Christian at all and retreat to just being with believers all the time, and that's it. That is a form of fleeing, and it's a strong temptation. Uh, some take flight in another way, lashing out. This is taking flight because it's not dealing with the problem of the foundations being destroyed in the right way. What I mean is that we, uh, these days we get a lot of the world's thinking forced down our throats and we can become hateful towards those who are attacking the foundations of God's word and we are just angry all the time at what is happening to our world. And we don't show the people the truth of God's word in love, rather we retreat into our angry uh, caves and just start shouting about how rubbish the world is. And we, we, we get angry at politicians, we disagree with, we get angry at the media, we get angry at every Disney film that comes out and we just spend our whole lives just really mad. That is a temptation and it's a temptation to flee. Uh, another one is that some people flee by retreating into the past, fleeing to the past. Uh, these Christians spend a lot of time moaning about the way the world is, but they're not necessarily angry about it as such. They, they, they just spend all their time talking about how the world used to be back, back in the past and how much better it was and, and how the world wasn't that bad then and I'm sure it wasn't sin. there wasn't sin in it really. I'm, I'm sure it was perfect. And they kind of live in the past. Well, that's a place of retreat, a place to flee to. And I think if we spent as much time praying for the world as we do moaning about the world, we may see God transform it much quicker. Uh, others uh, flee by burying their head in the sand and hope it would all go away. It won't. And sadly, some just stop following Jesus altogether. It's just too hard and they flee from Christ. Well, Jesus prayed for us and what we are to do in the world that we are in. When the wicked are attacking their foundations, Jesus prayed, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, so not fleeing, but that you protect them from the evil one. We don't belong to this world, so it's right that we kind of feel, as we read elsewhere in the scriptures, foreigners and exiles. But Jesus prayed that we'd be protected from the evil one, not that we'd be taken out of the world completely. 
Therefore, the flight is a temptation, but it's not what the righteous ought to do when the foundations are being destroyed. On Thursday evening at prayer meeting, we heard about pastors in the Ukraine in a country where their foundations are literally being destroyed by bombs. What were the pastors doing in Ukraine? They met to strategize how they can reach people with the gospel in a war zone. When the foundations are being destroyed, what do the righteous do? They meet to work out how they can reach the lost for Christ. That was an amazing testimony, wasn't it, of, of, God's, of, of how God is at work in these people and their desire not to flee from sharing the gospel but to keep proclaiming Christ. When the foundations are being destroyed, what do the righteous do? What do we do? We work out how to live in and how to reach our culture with the gospel. What the righteous do is they settle on a different foundation altogether, the foundation of faith. And that's what we see in verses 4 to 7. The the focus changes in the second half of the psalm. We read the words, the Lord, four times. David's foundation is not actually being destroyed because his foundation is on the Lord his God. David has faith in the Lord And so David doesn't flee the Lord. So look at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. The holy temple and the heavenly throne are two different places where we can say God dwells. So the temple is God dwelling among his people. Even though in David's day the temple had not yet been built... Poetically, he is speaking about the Lord being with his people. And today, through the church, though it may be under attack, the New Testament makes it clear that the church is God's temple, the place where he dwells. So Ephesians chapter 2 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the church is where God dwells. And that includes us as individuals because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, We read Paul say there, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? So God being in his temple in Psalm 11 in the New Testament world is God lives in you and he lives in me. He lives in us. He dwells in us. He hasn't fled from us, in other words. He's always there with us. The foundations of our society may well be being destroyed, but God's not going anywhere from his people. His church is being built on far firmer foundations than anything in this world. It is built on the foundation of Christ. It will be built, and he's not going anywhere. But the heavenly throne, secondly, speaks of his ruling as sovereign king over the world. And God's not going anywhere from that throne either. He's not going to be removed from his throne, he's not under threat. He's not, uh, the, you know, the, the wicked can fire their arrows and 
bend their bows at the Lord, but he's going nowhere. He is the king who rules supremely over all, always. God is the immovable, firm foundation dwelling in and over his people and over his world. And notice David's certainty on this. He says, the Lord is in his temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. That's where God is. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of this truth when wickedness seems to prevail, when the foundations of our society are under attack and it seems all is going wrong. Remember, the Lord is on his throne. The Lord is with his people and he will never be removed. Well, because God is everywhere, he sees everything. Uh, David has faith that God sees both the righteous and the wicked. Notice that in the second half of verse 4, of, uh, this theme of God, of God seeing, it says, He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. Uh, that word observe means he sees everyone. He doesn't miss anything that we do or say or think. He knows it all. He observes everything. But when it says his eyes examine, literally it means his eyelids. And the reason it says his eyelids is because the idea is it's, a, it's, a, it's an image of him squinting. Not because he's got eyesight problems, like some of you, you know, need a large print Bible, right? But the idea is that he's, when, you're, when you're really examining something, you, like, you squint, don't you? You get you, your eyes focus on it. That's the idea. He's examining by squinting his eyes and having a real good look. God is overall, and he's closely examining what is going on in his world. He doesn't miss a thing. And the word for examine means to test, like the testing the purity of a metal under fire. The same Hebrew word is used to this effect in the prophecy of Zechariah. In chapter 13 and verse 9, uh, Zechariah says of God, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. So it's like the idea of heating up the metal to find out what's there and then remove the impurity. And so God sees all and he's testing all. And in verse 5, we see how this testing is for the righteous and for the wicked, for both. The first line of verse 5 says, The Lord examines or tests the righteous. And the New Testament speaks of how God's people are tested. It's not for sin, but it's for refining. We are put under heat, if you like, to make us pure metal, more like Jesus. And we read about this in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter, six, uh, chapter 1. In the, all this you greatly rejoice, though for now... Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So you see there that idea of testing, that, that purifying. And testing in this way removes the bad impurities and brings out the good. Now, that's not to say that every trial we go through is because you've sinned in some way. That's not what this means. Rather, it means that all of our suffering, 
all of our trials, all that we go through, is God refining us and making us more like Jesus, removing the dross. That means when we have the the foundations of our lives shaken, we have faith that God is working in us and through us for his glory, making us more like Jesus. And because he's doing that, and we know that that's true, we don't have to bow to the temptation to flee. Rather, we flee to God and we say, Lord, make me more like Jesus. Through this, glorify your name. He's working to show us that our foundation is actually Jesus Christ. But the other part here to consider is how God tests the wicked in a different way. How he brings justice against those who are trying to destroy the very foundations of the world that he has set in place. For the fire that refines the believer is one that will destroy the wicked. Notice the strength of language used here in verse 5 of, of the wicked. It says, But the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. With a passion means to the very core of his being. Now, we may be un- uncomfortable with this kind of language being spoken of, of God, but God stands against those who are violent against the foundations of the world he has made. He hates those who are trying to overturn the good moral order that is for the good of the world he made and was, that was made to bring him glory. Those he hates are those who refuse to repent those who refuse to, 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 to follow God's good way, to, to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. This hatred is a good thing because God designed the world for our good and his glory. And it's not good for humanity when the world goes against the design that God has made. It's not good for us. The wickedness in the world that causes so much damage and havoc is because we are in a world that is rejecting God, and God hates that and those that are causing it. And so in verse 6, we see the fire of judgment on the wicked. This is no refining fire here. This is just destruction. Those who try to destroy the foundations will themselves be destroyed. Fiery coals, burning sulfur, are reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed in Genesis 19. Those cities were renowned for wickedness and the fire and the brimstone that that fell on them. Notice at the end of verse 6, a scorching wind will be their lot. Scorching wind is another way of describing the heat of judgment. But the phrase, will be their lot, is literally translated as the portion of their cup. The portion of their cup. The idea being the cup is drunk and it's a way of describing how someone was receiving something. So the cup of God's judgment being drunk meant that someone was receiving the judgment of God upon themselves. And if you've not turned to Jesus Christ and taken refuge in him, I urge you to do so today, otherwise this is your fate. His hatred is not towards those who turn to him, who begin to live as the new humanity that he made us, the ones that don't try and destroy his foundations, but live according to his word. 
As those that reflect Jesus, those are the ones he shows favor to, who he loves. His hatred is against those who will not repent of their violence against his good laws. And so if you're here tonight and you're wondering, well, does God hate me? Not if you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, then you have received unimaginable love. And so I urge you, turn to Jesus Christ. Come to refuge in him. But in verse 7, we see why this judgment is so severe, why this language is so strong. In verse 7, David says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. There is only a hatred of the violent because there is a love. The Lord is righteous and he loves justice. You can't love justice and just be okay with wickedness. The attempted destruction of the foundations of God's moral order is bad for humanity, and God is grieved at the impact it has. This is not God, by the way, needing us to praise him. This is not God being petty. No, God's glory is good for the world he has made. For he made it for his glory and as an overflow of the love within the Godhead. Well, we've heard in this psalm about God hating the wicked, but it's also true that God loves wicked people that turn to him. And all of the psalms are sung by Jesus and are ultimately about him. He is the one to turn to. Jesus trusted his father completely, but he was often told to flee the plan of the cross that God had for him. The temptation uh, for Jesus was to flee. In the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted to bypass it and bow down to Satan to flee. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was tempted to flee the cross. As he walked on this earth, his enemies were ready to attack him. Always and often they did, but Jesus continued to trust his Father's plan. And when Jesus was faced with that temptation in the garden, he decided to go to the cross. He didn't flee. The portion of his cup was God's wrath for sin, for our sin, that was drunk by him. So Jesus prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He did not take flight. He followed his father's plan. The portion of his cup was the wrath of God for our sin. And in his death and his resurrection from the dead, the emergence of the church built on the foundations of Jesus Christ began to destroy the very foundations of the Roman world which were trying to destroy it. And it is through faith now in Jesus that we take refuge in God. It is through faith in Jesus that we will be part of those who we read about at the end of this psalm. The upright will see his face. Because Jesus died for us, we can be forgiven of our sin and made right with God. And one day, we will see his face. What can the righteous do 
when the foundations are shaken? What can the righteous do in the face of evil? The righteous confess trust in God's righteousness and they embrace the hope that those made right through Christ will see his face on a day when evil will be no more. When tempted with flight from the world, stand firm on the foundation of Jesus Christ, having faith in him. Brothers and sisters, do not flee. Do not flee. Have faith in Jesus, the firm foundation that will never be destroyed. Well, our final song uh, that we're going to sing together uh, speaks of a firm foundation that will never be destroyed. Um, this week, when I was preparing the sermon, uh, I found out that the ladies at the retreat were singing this particular hymn that I was intending on choosing, uh, and they have sung it, but they've sung it to a different uh, arrangement. And so we're going to sing the arrangement that was sung at the, the ladies' retreat. Uh, but this is, we're going to do it by having the first verse... Uh, played for us uh, and uh, sung for us and then we'll all stand together to repeat the first verse again and sing the rest of the hymn. It's, it's quite easy to pick up but if you are a lady, uh, why don't you join in with the first verse uh, to help us? Um, if you're a man and you know it, you have permission to sing, don't worry about it, I won't uh, tell you off. Uh, but why don't we stand, um, uh, stay, stay seated for this first verse uh, and then after the first verse has been played, we'll all stand together, repeat the first verse, and sing the rest of the hymn. So, let's sing.